Creative Loitering Podcast. Okay, and we're. Uh, I just noticed the uh, the practicality of that giant recording button as you just smacked it. <laughs> oh yeah, I love the. <laughs> oh, bat. It really is nice having a big record button. Yeah. Uh, instead of just clicking everything. Yeah, or having to go like so you don't hit like everything else around it. Right. <laughs> now, one of the microphones I was trying before we ended up going with the Shure SM7B was yep. the uh, Rode Broadcaster. Gotcha. You know, that's what they use on the um, Adam Carolla show. Sure. It's got that red light. So what are we listening to? Oh, this is uh, King's Castle. It's a, another local band. Um, I didn't mean to have this play <laughs> turned up, but... Uh, <laughs> well, you can control the volume on your phone or with this fader, uh, whichever you like. You can reach over and do that or that. Uh, on there is fine. This is this is uh, turned up for Bluetooth. So, so what are we listening to? Uh, this is King's Castle, their latest release uh, from like three years ago. It's called uh, "For Those Lost at Sea." Um, I did. I mixed most of the tracks off this, but some of them were uh, regurgitated from older stuff before I met them, like sixteen years ago or something like that. Sixteen years ago. Well, I mean, I met them in 07, but they had stuff from before that, so. Nice. This was also mastered by Andy Vendette. Who's the best? No, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't Andy Vendette. I apologize. This is mastered by Josh Merck Mirsky in Albany. This is uh, a little more indie than I'm used to working on. So what what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I kind of was instructed to cool it with the use of drum samples and things of that nature. What I meant by indie is more like, you know, people who prefer like a more organic sound instead of me just going all nickelback all over it. <laughs> if you want a nickelback, you should nickelback. <laughs> Don't let people hate on your nickelbacking. But uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, it's it's amazing that the the spectrum of people you get to work with sometimes some sometimes people just think that like you know whatever you do is just killer the first time around because you're used to doing it and you know what they want and then others you know that you've known for a while they'll come in and they'll have a whole bunch of changes because you weren't hearing it the way they you know they expected to hear it or they had a different idea in mind so let's just say there's a lot of automation on this record. <laughs> I've had a mixes that I'm 100% happy about. Yeah. And I sent it to the client and they're like, "Hey, no disrespect, but that's totally not what I wanted." Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still happy. I'm like, "Yeah, that was a badass mix." Yeah, right? Uh, and then there's been a couple of times where I'll mix something and then it doesn't gel with the rest of the album, like it stands out. Right. Uh, big time. Here here was the <laughs> All the budget for the record went into this song. <laughs> I could grab a CD right now. Like I'll, I'll show you the ones like the ones that I mixed and the ones that you know they, they just kind of had somebody else do it or just didn't try very hard. Yeah. And then they give it to the mastering engineer, and it, there's just the tonality is so far away that it just doesn't work. Yeah. 
Yeah, so like the one song that I mixed on this one album, like so it that, just, that's a single, and then the <laughs> yeah, I mixed it like a probably like they mixed uh, "License to Ill" by the Beastie Boys. Okay, you know, it's just it's just got a real fat, round, full tone to it, and to me, that's what that song really wanted. That's what it needed. Right. You know, the artist had recorded the vocals in his bedroom on a budget microphone. Sure. And I just reamped the hell out of it. Just yeah. Remastered it. I think I passed it through a manly Veramu. And just added. You used to have one, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I had, I had a Veramu and I used to use that all the time. It's almost like cheating because that was the one when they had that gigantic iron wound transformer out the back. Did you have that here? I don't it, think. Yeah. It had so many tubes in it. You had to have. Um, An air conditioner for it. <laughs> you had to have ventilation um, on top and bottom. So it's it, it was a two RU, but it was really a four because right. you had to have so much uh, ventilation just for this thing. Right. Uh, but it would just fatten everything up so well. It was almost like cheating. Uh, and you could just add massive amounts of gain to something. And as you're turning the gain up, it just gets fatter and better. Right. And, uh, you know, if there was one compressor in the whole world I could have, it would definitely be the very mu. Interesting. A guy who doesn't go to the 1176 first. <laughs> Did you have that with the uh, with the seven thirty seven as well at the same time? Yeah, I had the seven thirty seven. Yeah, I did. At did you have that? Time. You also had the uh, Shadow Hills unit. Yeah, I've owned several seven thirty sevens. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so I keep UAD going back and forth. Just modeled that. Yeah, and I had um, <clears throat> yeah and tubes for that too. Nice. Yeah, so I've tried uh, you know different configurations of the tubes. You know, somebody figured out that they sound a little fatter if you put these, you know, crazy Russian tubes in there. And I tried that for a while, and they were probably right. I'm trying to think um, of the name of those because I, I I had one that just burned out recently on a preamp. I just changed. It was a fun name to say, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Avalon used to make some. Well, they still do probably make some really good stuff. If I could only use one brand of audio gear, yeah, like for any hardware and microphones, yeah. uh, you know, it would probably be Manly. Like I would use their reference mic and yeah. their Verimu, and there's just like this long list of amazing they have, they stuff have a you new could unit use. Called the Vox Box, which is pretty popular. Yeah, yeah, they've had a few variations of that over the years, and it's um, always been very expensive and very awesome. And very heavy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Nothing they make is, geez, that, that, yeah. And I had the massive passive EQ and th that's a beautiful EQ. Yeah. There's actually, um, uh, Australian friend of mine on Facebook, uh, one of the audio forums. He, uh, he recently just got this unit that I forgot that CLA has cause he never really talks about it in his videos past just pointing to it. But, uh, Manly made an EQ. I think it, I can't remember if it's an EQ or a preamp or a combination of the two, but basically, um, in the middle of it, it has engraved Poltec in quotes and then EQ or something like that. So that's a pretty interesting. I think it's like a one or two unit space. In quotations. Yeah, I like no, that. No, like I, I actually yeah. pointed that out. Like it was like last week on Facebook, this kid, Chris, that I'm, I'm friends with, and uh, he posted a picture of the unit that he purchased secondhand. And um, that was my comment. I, you know, I like how they put Poltec, but inside quotes engraved on the faceplate. <laughs> People are still paying stupid money for those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I'll look at gear on eBay or something and see what everybody's up to. And uh, what I'm always surprised about is that things haven't changed much in the last 15 years, let's say. Yeah, no. Uh, they've gotten a little bit better, uh, and the computers have gotten a little bit faster, but 
you know, you, you tell me, is there, couldn't you make just as good of a record in 2010 digitally as you could today? It would just be maybe a little easier. Um, it'd be easier now just because of all the cheat tools we have, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Like what's different in the last, what's new in the last 10 years? Um, two things off the top of my head. I don't know if the first existed 10 years ago, cause I'm kind of new to the technique overall, but there's a, uh, for me, like I said, newer uh, tools are dynamic EQ. So it's not multiband compression. It's actually dynamic EQ. Uh, the first one I bought was the Waves F6, which is kind of cool. I, I use it sparingly. It's more so like if an artist, uh, for instance, our buddy Carm Grasso, he's got a couple acoustic tunes, and he now sometimes like you might be getting carried away with certain high notes or whatever on an acoustic and something might just poke out a little too much oh, just because yeah. of the nature of an acoustic guitar. And, um, you know, you'll just go to that one frequency and drop that down and, you know, hit the threshold and whatever it hits that, that note at that volume, it'll duck it for you. Um, it's not a compression, it's an EQ. So it changes the volume of the band, um, you know, per the threshold. Um, but, uh, who's got the other dynamic EQ that's really popular. There's one uh, company called Fab Filter who are making. Um, they've got like a massive following now. They have a uh, an EQ that just came out called Pro Q3, which has dynamic EQ built into it. Um, but the other, the other big one that I see all over these uh, production videos online when when top mixers and producers go through their their sessions, um, there's a, a company called. I think it's Oak Sound or Ook Sound, something like that. It's hard to say because it's, it's spelled weird, but they have a, a plugin called Soothe, and basically no one knows what it does. <laughs> ah. And that's literally what people say online. Like, we don't know what this does, really. It's like, uh, it just basically, it's like uh, a harshness removal, and people are using it on, um, on like, sort of like abrasive, distorted guitars and things of that nature. And and sometimes two mixes, depending on the what's going on, but... That's um, awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, it's got these like different, it's, I want to say it's sort of like a multiband compression, like the way the, the parameters are set up, but it's, I don't know, it's really hard to describe. And, you know, that's sort of like what everybody else says online too. It's just like this magic thing where it just takes the harshness out without, without just rolling off treble. Like there's been a couple of guitar tracks I've had where before I got the Soothe 2, which just came out, um, I didn't want to spend that kind of money on a plugin for like EQ stuff, but once I tried it in the demo, I just couldn't help but get it on sale. Cause I mean, basically it, it, it was a better sound than me having to do a really sharp roll off on the treble for a guitar to take the bite out that I didn't want there. Right. Um, this just kind of like handles that without making it sound extreme. What I mean, extreme is like artifact, you know, stuff. Um, so that's, that's something to look into, but, uh, and I think people use that a lot on, on some, uh, overhead type of stuff for drums and things. Cause like you said before, these days people are recording stuff in a multitude of ways in different places at their houses or, you know, subpar less than ideal situations. So there's in, in today's productions and mixes, there's an increasing ratio of audio repair while you're mixing, which is kind of strange. The source material is not what it could be because the budget's not there. So now all these companies are capitalizing on tools to basically repair everything. <laughs> exactly. And that's where the market is, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Um, 
U- utility, I guess is what I call it. That really started rearing its ugly head right around 2004, 2005, uh, where uh, I started doing uh, more mixing uh, and people who used to record at my studio would send me their mixes. Yep. Yeah, because they, they really wanted to record themselves. You know, it wasn't even that much about the money. They just really enjoyed doing it and yeah. the production at, end of it. I actually hate recording myself personally. <laughs> uh, well, I think it depends on what you're recording, uh, who you're recording, and where you're recording. Sure. Um, <clears throat> You know, if I was born 20 years earlier, yep. I would have been perfectly happy uh, with the whole career as a recording engineer, you know, working in a world-class facility with world-class artists. Yep. You know, I, I would have been very happy with that as uh, my existence. Yeah, that would have been fine, you know, before uh, everything started to go digital and everything started to change. You know, that would have been a lot of fun, I think. Well, I mean, that. you know, not to go on to the timeline, but if you want to get technical, I mean, you know... Sound City almost closed twice before they actually closed. <laughs> they did. Yeah. You know, they came close a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I bring that up. Actually, I have the documentary on my computer and I just, uh, I watched a lot of it again. I think it was last week. So it's a little fresher in my head right now, but. Great documentary. I like the part where the owner shows that he had the original receipt. Yeah. Signed. The invoice. Yeah, yeah. It was signed by Rupert Neve and he paid like 75 grand for this yeah. back in uh, the 1972 or whatever it was. Something like that. Add another zero now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like literally yeah. add another zero. But hey, at least it's in commission at Dave Grohl's house. We were opening up a studio. This was probably in 2001. Yeah. Few months after 9/11, we're opening up in a studio, and we've got like some partners, and we've got some investors, and we're lining everything up. And I end up on the phone with Solid State Logic Rep. Nice. And (laughs) yeah, and um, he calls me back, and he's like, "Okay," and he was a little cocky right off the bat, Uh, and he goes, "Okay, um, our." Our cheapest console is $250,000, and that's for an eight-channel, and that includes a patch bay. Eight-channel? Yeah. Holy shit. An eight-channel console with a patch bay. You know, it, like it's so, like, wow, a patch bay? Okay, well, I wasn't going to pay quarter million dollars for eight channels, but since it has a patch bay, I'll take it. And the SSL badge. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, what model um, was that, do you recall? He didn't even say which model. That was his uh, question uh, to make sure I was a qualified lead, which I wasn't. Right. We had nowhere near that budget. Right. For that sort of thing. You know, not even close. So it wasn't like a 4,000 or something like that, like a smaller version. Uh, And that was the end of the conversation. I'm like, hey, you know, if we uh, were looking for something way, way, way more expensive down the line, I'll be sure and give you a call there, SSL guy. Yeah. So talk to you never. (laughs) Right. Right. Andy was... You know, he just wasn't that cool about it. You know, he didn't say, oh, but we do have some channel strips you might like. You know, he didn't try. That was maybe before SSL made channel strips in 01. They, maybe they were still hanging on to their old format. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they had like the, uh, what were they called? Not Alpha. Was it Alpha? They had like, a, you know, like the one unit like strips. They they did the one unit rack mounts and um, 
And then they went to 500 series a couple right. of years after that. And yeah, the ultra channels, I think they're Yeah. Called. So people had lunch boxes full of those all day long right. for quite a while there. Maybe they still do. Lunch boxes are getting really cool. I'm not sure if you've seen the latest stuff, but it's, it's incredible. What do they have? This company, Radial, I think you've used some of their stuff before, too. They, the bulk of their range is utility stuff like, you know, various DI boxes, base preamps, that kind of thing, uh, reamp boxes, too. But uh, they have a lunchbox called the Workhorse. A buddy of mine out in Ohio has one. He was... He was more of a proponent of it when he first got it, but then it kind of became a drag for recall. But basically, it's a 500 series where um, it's got switches on the back where you can kind of put them in series or leave them separate, like each unit. Okay. And then there's also on the, I'm not sure what you call it, but like the fat section at the end where the on button is, there's a, there's actually a uh, eight-channel uh, summing amp built into this unit. So you can sum through it as well with like a DB25 or whatever. Um, oh, that's got some value having that with it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, most recently there's a, a UK company, I think they're called Cranbourne Audio, and I keep seeing the ads on online. And this this one lunchbox they have, I don't even know all the features, but it's got like digital readouts and stuff, and you can do like, you can pipe in from like other types of gear, and I think it's got a, um, some sort of digital interface on the back where you can recall stuff like from from in the session and whatnot, so it's got a lot more uh, a lot more protocol for interfacing. Basically, it's not just hardware that you have to you know um, go in or out from your interface. It'll it'll uh, do some of that digital work as well. So, what are your what are some of your favorite references? Like, if you're if you want to compare a mix, uh, what are some of your go tos? Like it's just to um, keep your ears calibrated. Um, I'm not sure which ones I should tell you, <laughs> but uh, well, one time, and th- this is this is a good reason why I I'm a proponent for uh, reference mixing because I know I have some colleagues locally and beyond that kind of swear by like you know they've got that weird organic mentality I guess you could call it where they think that everything should have like its own sound and its own signature blah blah. But uh, I was working on a core relay track once, and this is just like a segue into like what I actually use for referencing. But um, I'm sort of giving you a reason why I do it after I discovered this plugin that I use called uh, I use Metric AB and Sample Magic AB, but that's beside this, the point. Um, uh, I was working on a core relay track, not to you know put myself under the microscope, but and I'm like, you know, this sounds cool, you know, as it is right now. And like you kind of, you develop a bias because like they say, your ears have a short attention span. So you quickly get used to what you're listening to and just think that it's right because that's what you're calibrated to at the moment. Exactly. So then like I'm putting it on like other speakers and I'm comparing it to stuff and I'm like, well, what am I doing wrong here? Why does this sound like this? And long story short, I, uh, I threw some Nickelback and Breaking Benjamin, uh, you know, top singles um into this a b plugin and toggled back and forth and um the weirdest thing happened that i hadn't encountered consciously before i was missing like all sorts of like 901k in my guitar distortion and i'm like wow that sounds a lot fuller in the top in the upper mids so i start cranking that area of my guitar tracks 
And then magically, it's just the upper mids just bloomed and it sounded a lot fuller. And I was like, oh, no shit, I got to start referencing more. (laughs) But uh, yeah, basically, depending on what I'm going for, like if, you know, different types of material, I will generally reference a lot of stuff by Bob Rock. So like 90s Metallica, um, uh, you know, stuff like, you know, Howard Benson, David Bendeth stuff like Three Days Grace or Breaking Benjamin, you know, it's basically um, like top 40 modern rock, you know, anything mixed by like Chris Lord Algae, Randy Staub, those kind of guys. Cause I mean, you know, or Andy Wallace, even, you know, Nirvana type of stuff, whatever. For sure. Um, because I mean, that, that's the stuff that works and is on, you know what I mean? It's just, there's no denying that that stuff is successful for a reason and has stood the test of time. So, you know, um, people will argue and say, you know, like, uh, well, whatever you're mixing, you know, should have its own sound. It's like, yeah, but it's got to be at a certain level to begin with. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, at the same time, I know it's art, but it's also a business. And if you want people to listen to your stuff, culturally, we have expectations. And that's across the board. I mean, you you know, you've done film and photography and stuff. People expect things to look a certain way, regardless of your personal taste. They're used to seeing certain things in the public eye. Exactly. So there, there is like a preconceived notion, if you will, of what the product should sound or look like. And there's a certain dynamic range they're expecting. Right. Uh, like, so when the guitars bloomed, when you uh, moved it up at 900 hertz, you know, based on that reference, sure. the AB between the um, reference track, that's moving it towards where the public expects to hear a, a certain sound. Yeah, okay. that, that and, reference yeah. is on their playlists. <clears throat> and, and that goes to portability. Sure. Right. So, And that's more likely to sound good, sound great, hopefully, on any playback system. Right. Uh, sure. So, yeah, I think re- I think using plenty of references, whatever works, and you know, regardless of what anybody thinks about Nickelback or a Bob Rock production, they yep. sound great. Oh, sure. If it might not be your taste in music, but it's very difficult to debate uh that those are sonically some of the best recordings yeah i mean you know not to not to go on the bob rock tangent but i mean you know how many producers out there can you say other than maybe rick rubin have you know uh top the charts with you know uh lover boy metallica michael buble you know what i mean it's it's the entire spectrum and they're all hits right so yeah, so some of the best producers, yeah, they're jumping all over to different genres, and it's just uh, they've got the golden ears. Definitely. Yeah, and, um, and I think part of it, especially with someone like Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. uh, there's a huge amount of uh, prepping. You know, there's a big front end. You know, like I remember, like, uh, System of a Down mo- took it to the next level once uh, Rick Rubin started helping them what with their production. What was that, like, toxicity or? yeah. Uh, so before that they were, I don't want to say a B list band, but in terms of record sales and ticket sales, uh, their breakthrough album, uh, yeah. Toxicity, uh, was really what put them on the map. That had like chop suey and all that, right? Right. So chop suey was a lot of people's, um, first exposure to system of a down. Uh, and when they talk about the recording of that album, um, they were in a rehearsal space for two or three months. Pre-production. Uh, two or three months. Yeah. Uh, and then they were ready to go into a studio. Right. 
That's ridiculous. I have to just elaborate on that for a sec because in my experience working with some different types of metal bands and whatnot, it blew my mind being at people's garages and basements tracking, uh, you know, doing uh, guitar or bass dubs or what have you after being in a studio doing drum parts that uh, <clears throat> these bands, you know, they would say that they would rehearse. These are bands that would rehearse, you know, once once, twice a week. They had gigs all over when, you know, this is like 15 years ago at this point. But And I, I'm sitting there, and they played shows too, and I'd seen them on YouTube, you know, and then there were, there were successful shows, a lot of a big following and whatnot. And then I'm sitting there like in a studio setting, quote unquote, in someone's house doing overdubs. And one of the guys is, you know, running the console because I'm just like the consultant at the point because, you know, for my money and whatnot. And uh, one guy stops the other guy and like, um, wait, what's that guitar part that's happening there? And like, you know, bar 30 something or whatever. Um, oh, yeah, that's this, this and this. And it's like, um, did you always play it like that? And in like in my mind, I'm like, hold the phone, people. You don't know what each other are playing, but you rehearse twice a month and you gig regularly. Like, how are you even pulling this off? And and uh, that's uh, actually on my website. I had posted a blog about this because I just it just blew me away. Um, uh, basically, the long and the short of it was it's a blog from years ago where I basically said that you know even though you're a metal band, it wouldn't kill you to sit there and do like sectional rehearsals on acoustic instruments so you can hear and you're paying attention and you're talking to each other. Because even in my own experience being in a rehearsal space, you know, you're in like a living room size place and you've got a drummer just banging away like he's on stage, hitting cymbals at 120 dB. You've got a PA system for vocals that can't overpower that enough to hear anything worth a damn. So you've got a vocalist straining their vocal cords to be heard and you're not rehearsing like in a productive way. It's crazy. None of you can hear what each other are doing. You're just banging through these songs like, you know, just because you're existing, basically. <clears throat> and that's when it just hit me that, like, you know, people, uh, and I guess that's where my classical training came in, into play as far as my methodology goes. Because, I mean, in a classical environment, like in orchestra, symphony, what have you, you go to rehearsal and like, you know, you're not over amplified and you can hear each other and the conductor's identifying specific problems in different sections and whatnot. And to me, that's what rehearsal is. I mean, I've, I've asked bands before, I'm like, do you, ever, do you guys, you know, say it's a, a song with intricate guitar parts or like there's, say you've got a band where there's three or four singers, for instance, doing like, you know, Eagles type of stuff in the chorus or what have you. You know, how many bands can say that they actually sat there and just worked on that section and know what each other are doing till you can interact with them? Exactly. That just, that was screaming to me during this recording. I'm like, how are you recording an album and you don't know what each other play, but you've rehearsed these songs umpteen million times? That doesn't even compute in my head. <laughs> Sorry for the tangent, but it's just like... <clears throat> well, it was a good tangent, and I agree with you, and that's... It seems to be a problem that just gets worse and worse with these bands that they're just not rehearsing and they want to fix it all in the mix. Right. I, or, uh, you know, if they don't sing something quite right, they're like, well, can't you just fix that with auto-tune? And the problem there is things are getting better and better. <laughs> uh, it's funny you bring that up because I actually just got my uh, my update last week for uh, Melodyne 5 just came out. And um, basically the kicker there or selling point, I should say, is um, there's different tiers of Melodyne, as you probably remember, uh, different versions and, and what they're capable of doing. But um, 
they've been able to now tell Melodyne what is an S sound and whatever, and what the sibilance was, I believe it was, um, and then split that from the note. So they're not pitch correcting the parts that aren't pitched, so to speak. Um, and then you can also do like, you know, all the quantization and you can, you know, basically generate harmonies off of that stuff and whatnot. So it's, it's pretty crazy what you can do. There's people that get creative with it, which I think is awesome. But, um, to rely on that, I guess, isn't the best philosophy if you want to be the best musician that you can be. That was already impressive 15 years ago, what you could do with auto-tune. Oh yeah. Um, you know, just tracking that, um, Movement by movement with the key points and Pro Tools back yep. in the studio back in 03. Uh, yeah, you know, they worked wonders even back then, you know, and, and now they got the rack mount versions that they're using live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you don't even have the sound right live anymore, which is kind of well, crazy. But you do need to hit the right notes on your guitar and on your bass. And, uh, geez, if they're can, not rehearsing. You can rehearsing, tune that too, actually. Yeah, but if you're not tight live, yeah, you know, I think that's what Rick Rubin was doing for two or three months in the rehearsal space with System of a Down. Is they were just that album when you go back and listen to it, it's just so tight. Yeah. Well, and like what you said about the reference it mixes prior to, and then we just brought up uh, auto tune and pitch correction. Um, that also speaks to like we said before, what what our society's ear is tuned to so to speak, calibration-wise, is because people are used to hearing uh, perfect now, like in a final product. So, I mean, I've even read articles where, you know, there's Nashville engineers and whatnot who will, they'll they'll just run auto-tune on a vocal for, you know, like uh, any name, country singer, you know, Keith Urban, Toby Keith, whoever, um, and they'll just run auto-tune on like a default setting during a mix sure. just to catch anything just slightly, even though it's mostly a perfect performance uh, pitch wise, just because that's now what uh, the technology is so accessible and affordable that it's looked upon as lazy. Now, if you're not doing it, cause that's what's expected of you sort of like using drum samples and such. If you're using all live drums for a rock or metal band, they better be banging because people are expecting the sampled sound that has that punch to it. Exactly. It's just what people are used to hearing, what they expect. So they keep raising the bar and you got to keep up. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you know, you went from yeah. four tracks and now everyone should have like all the Steven Slate samples. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's a different set of uh, tools that you're required to have. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, that's, that's maybe one of the big changes that yeah. we've seen in the last 10 years where that stuff has gone from useful to expected. Right. And, uh, and on that note, too, I was watching um, a Nail the Mix episode with one of my favorite producers out of Denmark, uh, Jacob Hansen. He's done a, a lot of my favorite bands uh, even more recently. And he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was explaining a lot of uh, sort of those types of techniques that he'll use on mixes now um, for like the most minute areas of production and one example of that is basically he has a habit now of having his assistant uh run all bass tracks of a performance for example through melodyne and snapping them first because he noticed that a lot of bassists especially those who play with a pick um they might not have the best technique and he'll notice his ears are so tuned that he'll notice they'll sound off because if they're, if they're digging in too hard and incorrectly, um, you, 
as you as you would know, um, the pick attack, you're pulling the string ever so slightly sharp before it actually rings, sort of, ah. because of the distance the pick travels before the string is released. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that he's noticed that that kind of like rubs against the guitars in a weird way because it's just slightly out for a split second. So he'll have his assistant go in there and tune that bass back to true pitch where it's supposed to be, um, independent of the pick attacks. So it's just like it's perfect, it's dead on, because he said otherwise he gets like a headache and like he can just, it's like an annoying thing to him. So that's somebody with golden ears that's operating at the highest level of precision possible. (laughs) Pretty much. You know, it's like... um, (laughs) Somebody was telling me that Bob Ludwig is using a custom-made set of studio monitors he paid $800,000 for. Holy shit. That are uh, (laughs) bolted to the concrete foundation of the building in his mastering suite. Wow. With some ridiculous bolts. So is that like an acoustic thing or like an anti-theft thing? (laughs) It's got something to do with the bass response uh, where they're... He wants it coupled with this, you know, like they poured these bolts into the concrete foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And then they put it through the box and they went through this pretty elaborate uh, sequence to create this studio with these big speakers that nobody else has. Right. And the whole thinking is that, you know, you're not quite in an anechoic chamber. Uh, but oh, is that that chamber where like you can hear your blood vessels and all that? It's like uh, negative something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where there's just you can't hear anything. Right. Except um, for like the inside of your body. Right. <laughs> the only sound is coming from you, and nothing's reflecting back. And um, I've heard the the record for that is like forty five minutes. Uh, you'll start uh, to have auditory hallucinations very quickly. Yeah, I, I want to try that. I think is it's in like the Middle East somewhere, isn't it? Or Oh, they've got a bunch of them. Um, the Blue Microphone Company has one at their factory. Oh, I thought there was just one of these. No, Blue uh, in Latvia has a uh, anechoic chamber that they use for microphone testing. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and theirs uses uh, a pretty complex uh, sequence of wood lats jutting out. Uh, right. Kind of like a skyline on steroids. <laughs> and you yeah. can just walk out onto a catwalk into it or something. It's, oh, it's wow. pretty wild, yeah. Yeah, no, I would love to try that. Um, like I said, I heard the record that uh, the record for someone staying seated in there without freaking out was like forty-five minutes because you just start to lose it. And I want, I want to try it. <laughs> well, have you ever spent too much time in uh, in the booth recording, and you just you come outside and? You you come out and it's just too loud, like you can hear the air and not not in a booth, but uh when I was probably years ago when I was a bit younger and I would go to like an arena show with my dad, for instance, and I would have like those like Mondo foam ear earplugs in that basically cut out like everything. <laughs> you know, they, it's the kind of earplug that makes Metallica sound quiet in an arena. Right. Yeah, you come out at night like at the at the Times Union Center or whatever, and you go to the parking lot, you start unscrewing those from <laughs> your ear canal. Uh, yeah, the big yeah. orange ones you wear at the range? Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and like everything just comes rushing back in like loud as hell. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I know that feeling. It's really weird. Being in an anechoic chamber is probably like that, except even more intense. Right. 
Uh, I think it would be interesting to experience auditory hallucinations in an anechoic chamber. Anything particular that you read that people experienced? The way I understand it is uh, the way our brains are wired, Mm -hmm. uh, there is absolutely no natural situation to have an absence of noise. And our brains cannot run without uh, noise. Interesting. So when you take sound away, uh, the way our brain copes with that is to artificially manufacture noise to keep your brain running. So you're going to go nuts if you don't hear something. So it gives you (laughs) fake sounds in the form of a hallucination. That's almost like a... It's a sound transfusion. It's almost like a case of tinnitus that your brain just produces. Just like a... Because it your your brain knows somewhere, and that's what's so amazing that they're like there's a glitch in our brain that you guys discovered that we need to fix by adding fake sound. Right. So you're going to start hearing stuff that isn't really there. So don't worry about it. You're not going crazy, but we got to do this so your brain doesn't blue screen. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's perfectly normal. Anybody who goes in an anechoic is going to have auditory hallucinations. Wow. Yeah. So it's just one of those weird things that we never think about because, you know, we've been around for uh, who knows how many millions of years, like in this, you know, model number. Oh, sure. Um, model number. <laughs> yeah. You know, not counting all the proto-humans, but nobody has ever... Uh, invented an anechoic chamber until, you know, recently. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, like you said about the whole evolution thing, I mean, you know, we take sight and sound for granted, but I mean, really it's nothing more than like a safety mechanism at the core. I mean, we just, we use it for entertainment because everything's laid at our fingertips. But, you know, if you're out in like, if you're on like a show like Naked and Afraid, you know, that's like semi-primal, you know, your your sight and sound aren't really for like, you know, a convenience factor. It's more like to protect you. Right. So you're going to get heightened senses. Right. So your brain's going to sense that and it's going to turn up the gain. <laughs> you know, it's kind of cool that the way that we're able to do that. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, in terms of sound and that lack thereof. Who You mentioned CLA earlier. I was talking to somebody about Rocky IV, how CLA mixed Rocky IV. And that's one of the best sounding movies. Oh, I'm sure. And when you watch it, it sounds good. Yeah, somebody was talking about that, how, you know, that's that's why it sounds so good. You go back and watch it. And so all, all the dialogue has 8K cranked? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you ever be watching a movie and the dialogue's too low and the sound effects are too loud and they're all over the place and you find Almost yourself questioning? <laughs> Even if I'm watching a movie through uh, expensive reference monitors, yeah. there's still some of that. Even um, recent stuff, last four or five years. Right. There, There's exceptions. you know, and, and there have been exceptions going all the way back to Rocky Four and probably earlier where they get it right. Yeah. Uh, but it's amazing how often they get it wrong. Um, you know what movie sounded good was Interstellar. I love, I actually have yeah. the soundtrack to that on my phone. I, I love the yeah. soundtrack. Well, I thought they did a great job with every aspect of that, right down to um, some of the collisions and explosions in space were silent as a reminder that that would be a silent explosion if right, it was in, in space. Yep. Because there's no air to move and right. no air equals no sound. Right. 
Right. So I thought that was, um, you know, that was a bold choice to make. You know, and I, I picture a bunch of studio executives in a boardroom arguing about that. Like, that what do you mean there's cool? no explosions? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's definitely not a Michael Bay film. <laughs> the antithesis of Michael Bay, if you will. Exactly. But speak, speaking of inconsistent mixes, I hate to say it, but documentaries in specific, and one particular one is Sound City. Have you noticed that problem in there? Like, the dialogue and then the music just ramps up super loud, like twenty dB louder. It's crazy. Just it's just like, you know, hey, my name's Dave Grohl, and then bah! you know, <laughs> and I'm like, guys, just turn the music down just a scotch, man. They've got those old specs that, uh, in my opinion, um, yeah. should not be followed anymore. You know, in terms of uh, dialogue, sound effect, and yeah, it just music. gets old. Like riding your volume knob on your device, just because you're like, all right, you know, dialogue's on, turn it up. All right, now it's the music again, turn it down. <laughs> Are we still rolling? Well, that's interesting. It says recording interrupted. Please wait. Nice. Weird. So it's all this tech stuff that you want to stay out of the way for podcast, right? Most DSLRs will not record more than 30 minutes because of tariffs. It's an additional 6.5% to export out of Japan for a camcorder. And a camcorder is uh, classified as a device that records for more than 30 minutes. So most of the DSLRs cut off at 29 minutes and 59 seconds. There's a rule to this? Right. Wow. Right. So they cut it off. And that's never an issue, even for a filmmaker, the only time that ever becomes an issue is if you want to continuously record, which right. is rare. Uh, but if we want to sit here and have a long-form conversation and not want to think about the cameras, the right. easiest workaround is to use an HDMI recorder. So then that becomes this whole can of worms, like, okay, well, which HDMI recorder? Is it NTFS or right, pal, is or... it FAT32? Because FAT32 is limited to two gigabyte files being saved to it. Right. So it needs to break it up into pieces, like we were messing around with the two pieces yeah, yeah, yeah. of video. You know, wouldn't it be easier to just have one big MP4 or move file? Right. You know, and if you want to do that, there's some products that are happy to do that for you at a massive price tag. Sure. Yeah, it's like, dude, I just want to do some podcasts and maybe cut some footage together. It's right. like, take it easy. <laughs> you know, so like... Uh, there's the no happy medium. Yeah, the wide shot. I've just got this no-name HDMI recorder. You know, it's nothing crazy. It's just, you know, decent uh, quality. Yeah, so as long as the camera stays on, it's recording. Exactly. Right. And you can tell the camera to take all the information off, so it just records the HDMI output without, like, the settings or anything showing on it right. or the focus points, and uh, it looks just fine. So... Yeah, I'm just kind of testing that out, and if it works okay, if there's not too many glitches, like we saw with that one file that didn't want to take, but, yeah, it, yeah. Would but it would open on the computer. Right. You know, so who knows what's going on there? You know, that could be anything. Uh, if that works well enough, and it'll sync together, because it seems like what it's doing is it's just putting one red frame at the beginning of the end, like as a signal. Right. And I don't know. I don't know much about video. You know, that I'm not either. a filmmaker. I don't know if that's like a signal, like some kind of like SMTP time code kind of thing. Ah, SMT, yes. Right, yeah. So if it's uh, like a SMTP time code kind of thing where, you know, there's software that senses the red frame and just meshes them together. Yeah, I'm not and that's sure. just something I don't know about. Right. 
I looked it up a little bit. It looks like it's not a thing. It just has a red frame. <laughs> right. So it's just it's a little bit of extra work to stitch sure. these files together. So if we sit here and talk for 47 minutes, that'll be uh, four files. Right. It'll be three 15-minute files and then two minutes and however we keep talking. Right. Uh, but that is still way better you know, than having to stop and restart the cameras. And sometimes sure. they get glitchy and there's... Um, oh, yeah. Like, I don't know why that thing wants to stop and restart. There was, a, there was an incident I had... What was I doing? Yeah, I was doing drum tracks um, at a church for... Uh, one of my friends from college, his little brother is a drummer, and uh, he was he was the drummer for a, a pastor friend of his. And um, this was my first run-in with a computer failure during a recording, and it was my first MacBook Pro. I think this was like 2009, 2010, something like that. I might have told you about it because I knew you before this. And um, it just froze mid-drum take and did the beach ball thing, pinwheel. And then I had a comedy recording I had to do after that with the same computer. And um, I told the comedian, this was done in like Woodstock or whatever. And I'm like, hey, this happened to me during a drum recording. So I really don't want to like lose this gig for you. So here's what I need you to do. Because I'm sitting right next to the stage while I'm recording him. And I just for safety's sake, literally whenever there was like a long pause between punch lines, I would hit a uh, space bar, you know save and then i would just start rolling immediately again so i knew you know whatever was uh was recorded but like you know like you implied before you don't want to have to worry about that you know like glitches or you know stupid stuff like that i mean i know people have like redundant systems like where if one uh one drive fails the other one keeps going um one time i was working at wamc the linda down in albany and um I forget if I was the recordist or the front of house guy at the time, but for this particular show. But anyway, <clears throat> just for that that uh, that fact, we had the console was split in the control room between going to a the Mackie twenty four track hard disk recorder, and then a redundant line was going to a PC running Cubase, just for a safety. Because there was one time where we actually had to stop during the intro of the first song of a set with a live audience to start over because the one recorder failed that early in the show. But it's like, that that's the reason this device exists, and it still failed. Like, you know, the whole you had one job yeah. uh, thing? Exactly. You know, and tape machines used to fail too, I guess. That's what somebody would point out, I yeah. guess. They're like, oh, well, the tape would just start flying all over. And, oh, shit. Um, and there's that old horror story about uh, Billy Joel, his first album. They recorded it incorrectly, and the pitch was off. Oh, no. Right. They didn't have the speed set right, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So, And that was a disaster. You that know, must was, have been one of those uh, variable machines, right? Because aren't they usually like 15 or 30... 30 or 15 ips, I think it is. Oh, speaking of which, did you ever see that uh, the documentary I sent you about the uh, the one guy claiming, or uh, he said that he saw the documentation for Master of Puppets and Fleming spilled the beans that apparently the song Master of Puppets was recorded slower and then I think tuned to D standard. 
so James could, uh, you know, keep those rhythm guitars tight, and then they sped it back up to E uh, for the for the final. Fair enough. But yeah, that just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, wow, you guys are doing stuff like this in 1986. Who would have who would have thought? Especially a band like that. But mm-hmm. that album sounded okay, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, that every time they'd record, it would get better. You know, the, there was nowhere to go but up. Those early recordings, they're they're raw. They're just great songs. But nobody ever says, "Oh, I love the way Kill 'Em All sounds." Yeah. No. Like, no. <laughs> Uh, well it's it's kind of funny like they didn't really know how to do it yet yeah and like the the guitar sound is basically to my ear just like a boss ds1 straight into the console no friggin amp or anything right you know and if you look back into that same time range there was um other heavy metal bands that were having a lot more luck in the studio than metallica in terms of sound quality uh, you know, Judas Priest is a good example. Yeah, you know, they Dio, have, Dio sounded awesome back then. Oh, Dio had some great sounding records. Um, Ozzy's records don't sound bad. Yep. You know, you can go back listen to like uh, Diary of a Madman or Blizzard of Oz. Those aren't too bad. Yeah, they're a little lumpy here and there, but I've heard worse. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, solid stuff coming out, uh, but first few Metallica records definitely not on that list. Speaking of lumpy, you know what? Not to bring up Rat again. <laughs> But one of the things I, I'm always confused about, and yes, always because I think about it often, um, on out of the cellar, um, the snare sound on those drums is what I would deem not quite terrible. But to me, as a kid, listening to that, and still now, sort of, those toms are freaking awesome. <laughs> so it's like a weird mismatch. Those toms mm-hmm. have like that, like you know, that arena you know, nice slap to them and stuff and big and powerful. And then the, the snare is just like all bottom mic, basically. <laughs> if it works, it works. Yeah. It's just, it's weird. Cause it's just that, that, you know, if that was a sample pack in a library, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that snare with those toms, so to speak, but that's a good case for setting the references aside once in a while. Yeah. You know, but, you know, it's interesting that we touched on ability today because, yeah, I see the same thing with some of the modern music. It's like, uh, are you guys practicing yeah. anymore? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then there's some really good stuff, too. One thing I wonder about is how many people just aren't going to pursue music because there's just so many people doing it now that it's more accessible. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's... There's just so many more uh, albums coming out every year than there used to be. You know, I think it's like 10 times the number of albums are oh, coming sure. out each year than 20 years ago. Yep. There's just this amazing amount of music being produced. Okay, so it's a saturated market. You're less likely to get noticed. Yep. You're less likely to you know make a whole lot of money. Right. Um, and you know, artist and musician has always been the two lowest paying average professions. Right. Yeah. So you've got some people way up at the top and then everybody else is pretty much at the bottom and there isn't a whole middle class of musicians. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So you either you're making nothing or uh, you're making everything. Right. You know, there's a few people at the top, you know, and that's, you know, that's Pareto's law. So you're just exponentially going to do better and better and better. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of bands like they'll say, yeah, you know, it took us 10 years to be an overnight success. Oh, sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. So there's all that time they spend, and then finally they get noticed. Well, yeah. It's like, uh, it's sort of like when I learned, um, 
after I was an avid fan of bands like Green Day, for instance, that was back in my middle school years. Um, it wasn't until college when I met other people, um, you know, who were into that scene back when I was when I was younger as well, but knew the bands better. And they were hanging out and they are showing me demos and records the bands put out before their major label debut that everyone in the mainstream thinks was their first album. But there's like one to two before that that flopped, but only the diehard fans knew about them. Exactly. Like everyone thinks, you know, for instance, I think it was Green Day had like, I think Dookie was like their first like huge success, but like few people knew about Kerplunk before that. And then I think there was like an EP before that. So, you know, just as an example. A lot of that stuff, they're just finding their feet. You know, if you go farther back from the breakout album, you're usually disappointed. Right. Yeah. You know, at least I am. You know, Lou Reed's a perfect example of that. You know, his his first debut album, he wanted to self-produce it, you know, because he was in Velvet Underground and he thought he knew about production. Right. Yeah. Bombed. You know, but that was, um, he was a celebrity because of Velvet Underground, interesting guy, lots of press. Yep. So A&R didn't immediately drop him. Uh, and David Bowie noticed him and David Bowie produced his uh, sophomore album, Transformer. Yeah, Lou Reed yeah. was uh, my most recent uh, knowledge of him was for the uh, that collab that really weird collaboration with Metallica. That was a strange record. That was a <clears throat> very strange record. <laughs> I don't know if it was either of their best work, but it was interesting. So, Transformer sold about forty million copies. David Bowie produced it. It sounds like a Bowie record. Mm. I think David, one of David Bowie's tracks in the 80s was one of uh, CLA's big breakout singles that he mixed. Oh, I think it was Let's Dance. Was that it? Terrible song. But that was one of the, one of the tracks to cut CLA noticed. That, uh, that song did really well. I'm sorry. Was that, was that CLA or was that Bob Clear Mountain? Because he talked about Bob Clear Mountain a lot. Maybe that was a Clear Mountain mix. What about when Bob Clear Mountain mixed Use Your Illusion and they didn't like it? Remember that for Guns N' Roses? I don't recall offhand, but I'm I'm sure I read about it at some point. Yeah. Wasn't it Mike Klink or something like that? Uh, Mike Klink was the engineer, and yeah, I think they did end up using his mixes now that I think about and it. And it was the late Mike Shipley. He died a few years ago. Yeah, but yeah, my, Mike Klink recorded a lot of Guns N' Roses stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. But that was um, that was a big step up for them in terms of sound quality. Those Use Your Illusion records, right? You know, like they're much more polished than Appetite. I remember the first time I ever heard uh, November Rain. You know, that last sequence there where the guitar takes over is the main uh, main focus. I don't know if I'd call it the bridge, but that was like that last section there, that big guitar melody. That album was a big deal, yeah, for them. You know, and that's you know. When people go back and listen to Guns N' Roses, I think a lot of them, they're listening to November Rain. You know, the same right. way for Metallica, they're more paying attention to the Black Album they are, than they are to their earlier stuff. Right. Huge changes in the approach, you know, for both bands. Oh, yeah, sure. Did, yeah. Do you, did you know about the story about why Metallica hired Bob Rock? Because their other albums sound like shit? <laughs> well, it was actually a very specific reason they're... Um, when uh, I think it was Dr. Feelgood, when that came out by Motley Crue, 
<laughs> they heard that song and they wanted that snare. And that's why they hired Bob Rock. It was a very, very specific requirement. <laughs> that's a pretty good sounding album. Yeah. 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 I call it the five pound drumstick, you know, just where you get the, the full arm body swing, you know, the Tommy Lee style. Yeah. He was a heavy hitter. Yeah. Tommy Lee was. Yeah. I just think drums sound better when you, when you slow it down a little bit and you're, uh, you're grooving like that. Did you like that Motley Crue movie? I, is it just me or the casting for actors for those films are always so weird? It's not just you. They drop the ball more often, but that wasn't bad. Like in my opinion, yeah. um, you know, there's like Machine Gun Kelly, I thought did an awesome job. You know, I'm not a fan of his music, but, you know, in terms of his acting ability in that which movie. One, which one was he? I thought he played Tommy Lee. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah. Sure. And I liked how they opened up with that movie. They're like, hey, this is going to be one of those movies. So yeah, tell the kids to get out. That's our, that weren't <laughs> like yeah, right no, there, at the beginning there was of some Act stuff One. stuff in that party that I did not expect to see on a Netflix film. Right at the beginning. Yeah, because that movie, there was the um, that Def, Def Leppard one called Hysteria, I think. The casting was weird there. And then, that was bad casting. Uh, that felt like a budget problem to me, that yeah. whole movie. They just, yeah. I don't know. The the band members always feel like caricatures to me, like like the comedic version of the real guy. It's I don't know. It's hard to put my finger on it. The worst one was um, the Elton John. I didn't see that one. Rocket don't. Man, right? Yeah, don't watch it. Like, seriously, save yourself. I thought Bohemian Rhapsody was good. It was good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't dislike it. Mm -hmm. uh, again, casting. It's really, really, really difficult to cast those right because those, uh, I mean, these people are icons. It's not just their music. It's them and their personalities. Right. And, you know, we... We think we know these people, these celebrities, and yeah, then to watch an actor pretend to be them. Yeah, that's a tall order. Cartoon is, I, I guess, a good description. Hmm. the The one I didn't mind as much because it wasn't a real band was, uh, God, what the hell is the name of the that movie? That thing you do. I love that movie, but that hmm. wasn't it. I'm talking about the one with Mark Wahlberg and Zach Wild, Steel oh, Dragon, Rockstar. Rockstar. Yes. Oh, great movie. Well, the the producers gave that a lot of thought, and the way that they, I, the way I think they circumvented that was by using real musicians. You've got Jason Bonham as the drummer, right? And Zach wrote all the music, apparently, all those songs. Uh, Zach Wild, yeah, yeah, you know, and so that lended an air of authenticity to it. Just having these guys who had spent their lives in studios and on the road and right. living that lifestyle, uh, so I think that balanced it out pretty well. It's actually funny. I'm speaking of uh, that thing you do. <laughs> um, oh, let's uh, let's take a caller. Sure. If we can. No, we can't. Here. Yo. Hey, Rick. It's me, Bethany. What's up? We're yeah. doing a podcast. Um, just wanted to say, oh, my God, thank you so much. I freaking love the recordings. I'm loving the song even more now that I'm hearing it recorded. <laughs> And I just wanted to give you a call and just say thank you so much for helping out with that because I never even envisioned ever recording the song professionally. And now I've just been listening to it over and over again. And I was like, holy shit, I feel like I feel like we got to add some cello in there now that you mentioned it. So however soon you can get on that, I'm totally down for doing that because it was freaking freaking awesome. I'm glad you like it. 
I never even envisioned the song ever having anything but my voice and the guitar. But now that I'm listening to it, I'm like, that would be cool to have a version like that. If I just, after hearing it all, I was like, yeah, that would be awesome to add cellos to that. So yeah, no, I really appreciate this because I was not expecting any of this to even happen with this song. Hell yeah. So, but I'm in the parking lot of a Chinese restaurant and I think they just finished making my food. So I am going to say goodbye and I'm going to go. I'm going to go uh, say dirty things to this food <laughs> while I eat it. <laughs> All right. I'll see you next week. Looking forward to All seeing right, you I'll guys see again. You. Yeah. I'll see you next week. Okay. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So that's interesting. We were able to just pipe in the call. That's cool. Uh, but it, not right away because I had to disconnect uh, on pair one phone. Yeah. And then forget it on this one yeah. and then reconnect it. And then it was able to hop on. Right. So that's impressive So for the firmware to allow for you to do that. So we just took one phone off, yep. got another phone going, uh, and it never stopped recording. Right. So that's kind of cool, I think. It was strange though that it only had like the left channel. That's so. um, an artifact of the new firmware. Gotcha. Yeah, it used to be um, dual mono. Huh. Right. I'm not happy about that either. <laughs> I like things even. <laughs> the workaround is to uh, go ahead and plug in. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm not happy about that but part either. You would need a USB-C adapter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, there's a jack, um, and it'll give you mix minus. So you can plug in right here under oh, the okay. phone. Yeah, and uh, that'll that'll allow you to... Oh, yeah, if you have a headphone uh, adapter. A TRS, not a TRRS. Uh, but the TRS will, you know, let you, um, yeah. Hear just them. Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that seems to work pretty good. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's that. Alrighty. But anyway, let's, uh, let's play this back. See what we got. Sure. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Creative Loitering Podcast. Don't forget to ring the bell and subscribe and like and comment below and enable notifications and click the heart and leave a review and swipe right and Patreon and only fans and make a donation and follow me on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and WhatsApp and WeChat and TikTok and QQ and QZone and Reddit and Twitch and YouTube and Vimeo and Pinterest and Periscope and Valence and Zell and Venmo and Untapped and Alpha and Ubo and House Party and Peanut and Caffeine and 23 Snaps and Likey and Dave Tracks and Epidemia and Fark and Lee and Tumblr and LinkedIn and Tacked and Nextdoor and Mixed and Deviant Art and Burr and Flickr and Meetup and Coordination and Goodreads and Fixter and Pairing Bridge and Wattpad and Crunchyroll and eBay and Smugmug and Skyrock and MyHeritage and Live Journal and BK and Plus Mason Sound, Bound, Bubbly and We Hearted and Influencer and blah 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 blah.